It's been a year since OpenAI launched ChatGPT. NVIDIA's stock is up 200% since then. What if AI is underhyped? I'm joined by Glenn Catcher, founder and CIO of Light Street Capital, to explore the AI theme one year on. Glenn, can you describe the three major layers of a computing architecture evolution? Sure. So, you know, going back in my career and when, you know, well before me, back to mainframes and then on to minis and, and uh, client server and web architecture, which led the SaaS, you see over and over the pattern where over these kind of 10 to 15 year shifts in computing architecture, um, where equity prices, and of course, fundamentals, but then ultimately equity prices uh, in the, the different categories of infrastructure then platformer OS, and lastly, applications. In that order, the returns on capital tend to be highest for the first three to five years for the, for the uh, infrastructure sector. In the second three to five years, you see the highest returns accrue to that platformer OS layer. And lastly, you see the highest returns uh, for the application layer. It's interesting just kind of to watch this over and over again. And I think us as investors, um, sometimes we want to jump ahead and look at the applications layer and say, gosh, how are we going to use this practically? How is, you know, how is it going to fit into my workflow and my business, uh, whether it's personal or, or uh, your corporation? And, you know, that's, that, that's, you know, very important to understand how it will happen. But the returns on capital take time in the software or application layer because it takes years for um, the different solutions to be created, for them to be, uh, for the marketplace to create companies that kind of uh, segment the market in different industries, different uh, for different size companies. And so we uh, at Lightstreet want to really focus in first on that, uh, first on that infrastructure layer and keep as much capital uh, allocated to that portion of the industry in these early stages of the AI shift. You start first with uh, the GPU uh, uh, makers in NVIDIA and AMD. And I think going back 15 years, um, you know, we started hearing about uh, groups doing AI on top of GPUs as opposed to CPUs. And the floating point um, mathematical infrastructure or, or uh, architecture of those chips that, you know, initially was, those chips were created to uh, do mathematics around uh, graphics for gaming. Uh, the, the, the calculations for shading and, and, and um, 3D, how an object moves through 3D space requires uh, significant mathematics. Uh, the calculations and GPUs that were built for, for gaming ultimately are the best architected chips to do AI uh, calculations. So as, as the world is, as we've seen in you know, large language models where we're taking uh, the spoken language or, and, 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 and different content uh, sources and then, uh, and then collecting essentially words and grouping them in different ways, that's, that's a very mathematical exercise and we're predicting effectively the next word in the logic stream. And so that, that gives GPUs a real advantage. What we've seen is that um, a lot of investors are uh, assuming that this 
that this advantage of GPUs decays pretty quickly. And, you know, we have not, in, in, our, in our work in, in, in talking to the early LLM companies, we've not seen that in practical use. Surely they prefer to use lower cost chips. And the expectation is that over time, we will see uh, CPUs um, used in uh, LLM uh, inference. Uh, but right now, it, the weight of, of these solutions is um, the largest amount of these solutions are being run on, on GPUs, and we expect that to continue. If you look forward to NVIDIA's uh, Grace Hopper chip or AMD's MI300, you see a composite chip that includes, you know, C, uh, includes CPUs and GPUs uh, in the same uh, chip, and, and that's certainly moving in that direction, but that doesn't equal um, just a, a, a simple CPU being, being the most important architecture for uh, running um, AI cycles. So we, we you know, really believe that this, that this 30 year advantage that um, NVIDIA and AMD have built up over uh, you know, what few competitors there are that, that, are, that attempt to compete at the GPU level, as well as uh, CPU centric companies are really uh, behind in terms of gaining uh, more uh, market share and uh, dollar share of the, uh, of the hyperscaler business as AI processes are, get run in the cloud. So that's th those are the two kind of foundational uh, companies that we're most excited about. You also see opportunities um, in Broadcom uh, with their TPU business that they uh, exercise uh, and, and run for uh, Google. And so I expect to see over time Broadcom uh, get more business around their custom CPU or custom uh, chip business and expect to see more customers besides just Google. Uh, in addition to that, uh, you know, the leading edge uh, manufacturing leader in the world is, is TSMC. And TSMC, while AI today is, uh, you know, less than a 10% or around a 10% of their, um, of their business in the coming year, uh, it, we expect to see that grow dramatically as AI takes share from uh, CPUs. And so we expect to see uh, economic uh, return increase for TSMC in the coming years. So those would be the four key kind of semiconductor companies that we have in our uh, portfolio and, and, and are some of our largest positions. If we sort of look forward and, and, you know, we're not suggesting you only can own semiconductors. I think there are some foundational companies that are already doing very well in the platform OS sector. And so OpenAI certainly would be one of those companies. You get exposure to OpenAI both directly um, through, um, well, indirectly, but Microsoft has exposure uh, directly. And so, uh, and then they're getting to use and, and deploy OpenAI on their Azure infrastructure being the key partner and, and owner of 49% of the economics of uh, the OpenAI business. So Microsoft is certainly an important partner and uh, an important uh, creator of infrastructure software for AI. 
with their fabric architecture that they rolled out at, at, in their at their most recent uh, developer conferences. And so we expect to see them them do very well. We also think that AWS uh, will benefit uh, from AI infrastructure build and uh, business. And um, so the, in the hyperscaler category, we, 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 we have exposure there as well. So I guess the key insight within the infrastructure layer is that everyone will be scrambling for GPUs and you will see big tech companies benefit because they've got existing products and distribution, but there'll essentially be a smaller number of winners in a very defined market that have significant scale advantages. How do you um, identify when to switch from focusing on infrastructure to platforms? Well, I don't think there's a hard cut date. I mean, I think we're going to evolve over time and see uh, more, you know, I, I think we're still in the first uh, couple, you know, few innings of this from an economic perspective, you know, that clearly AI dates back, you know, 30, 40, 50 years in terms of, of, of the, um, the foundation of, of, of the thinking, but um, in terms of uh, economic growth and, and development, uh, we're, we're really in the first innings. So, I, I, it's hard to say. I, I, I think that, you know, we, we, what we have to do is just monitor what's happening. I expect, I think what is really interesting and, and I think we'll all, we all need to uh, keep an eye on is watching the hyperscaler companies, the mega cap winners uh, in Amazon and Microsoft and uh, fit in Facebook would be included in that too. Uh, and Google um, watching them make strategic investments into the LLM uh, category and then build up um, any kind of uh, infrastructure solutions that need to be built, uh, you know, between the LLM and, and the hyperscaler business. Uh, that's, that's certainly interesting. I think there's, to some extent, a crowding out of venture capital in, from this infrastructure layer in AI. And that's, I think, a little bit different than we've seen in, in previous cycles. I think back to the mid-90s and, um, you know, we saw Microsoft, you know, make their big effort to, in the early stages of, of, um, of, of the consumer internet, really try, try to play. And at that time, they were under... Uh, you know, they were under a lot of uh, focus from the FTC, and I believe we had the, the um, antitrust case was underway. So that tied their hands a little bit more back then from making those investments. And I think today, given that the, the investments that Google and Amazon um, and Microsoft are making are relatively small compared to the size of their market cap, uh, they're not getting much scrutiny. And they're uh, really taking, I think, uh, you know, very valuable early positions in this platform OS layer. And so we'll see what happens with, uh, and at the same time, I think late stage venture in tech has gone through a very tough cycle. We're still seeing some high priced rounds, but it's really difficult for late stage venture investors to compete against a balance sheet from Google or Microsoft or Amazon. And so that is, is really kind of disrupting, I think, the normal investment cycle. 
And so, you know, we're, we're kind of with our private funds, certainly looking at for AI uh, participants, but we're being patient because we think it's a, it's a difficult battle to fight with some of those, those big balance sheets. How is AI following the same evolutionary curve as the internet? If you think back to, to the, the, the late 90s, in when the internet really first, you know, surfaced, it was, it was a, um, it was, it was, I used to call it brochureware, you know, the, the early internet sites, there wasn't much to do there. I mean, I remember going to the Louvre site and NASA's site and Sun Microsystems site when the internet first started. And it was really kind of just a show and tell. It was just a demo of, you know, of HTML and the mosaic browser effectively and it took it took a long time to get to the point where the internet actually did something and uh you know early early you know e-commerce was it took years to get get e-commerce and early on you could do more with um with aol uh and CompuServe than you could the open internet so i think we're kind of in that phase where um i don't want to say llms are a toy they're they're very powerful but we haven't yet, uh, I think most businesses and individuals haven't really figured out how to incorporate them in their daily, uh, their daily job uh, and their daily lifestyle. I mean, we're, we're, I think it's moving quickly, but it, it really, we, we, need a, we need for, the, for our, the, the winners in applications to, uh, you know, bring that value into your daily workflow. And so, you know, in the same way that AOL and, and CompuServe, you know, really brought, uh, brought the internet into their environment and functionality started moving over into, into the internet and was, a, you know, really a huge driver of business for AOL and, and, and CompuServe for years and, and, until uh, the ISP market uh, the independent ISP market really took off. So I think that's, to me, kind of the parallel and the way to think about it. it, it I think, L, you know, I think LLMs and what they can do is very interesting. And, and uh, there's businesses that are that are early in, in, in figuring this out. But um, it's going to take time before we see the solutions. And I think you and I have talked about the I think there's some nervousness amongst uh, investors uh, in the in the venture community around well can, how much value as a startup can I create and you know does all the value accrue to uh, the LLM companies so if I for instance if I was creating a an application for lawyers uh, to help them uh, create contracts that were you know in a faster way um, it you know and I create that on top of OpenAI and you know, to the extent if I if I train if I train it off my data set, then you know, then then, I, then it belongs to me. But at the same time, OpenAI can train off data sets as well. And do you really need a verticalized layer today if all it does is spit out contracts um, in a simple way? Uh, then probably not. But so it, it takes time to build up that workflow that you know, it naturally replicates how a lawyer does their work. So it, it will take time to, to, for, for the apps layer to, to work. And I think there's some nervousness around that. 
I think the, the advantage that we have in the, in the early days is that there are some really massive uh, pockets of uh, value that, that I think today's tools can address. So if you look globally uh, at uh, the programmer market, there's $1.4 trillion of money spent on programmers globally. And if you make those programmers 30%, 50% more uh, productive, you, you see there's massive accru uh, a massive value accruing you know, to the end customer, to the, to the company that employs the, 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 uh, the developers. And so you see some of these early, you know, writing code uh, is one, I think summarizing and taking notes. These are pretty simple tasks, but um, you know, the summarization market's probably 150, $200 billion uh, market. And so there's some early wins that I think will bridge that gap to the, to the point where the apps layer is really ready to, to deliver a lot of value. If you think back to the 1990s and you use your methodology of the three architecture, infrastructure, platforms, applications, it was between 1990 and 1993 when the infrastructure layer was built, right, with Intel and Cisco. Then between 94 to 97, the platforms came in, to your point, of AOL and Microsoft and Apple. And it was 1998 to 2000 when you saw the applications with Oracle and Intuit and Adobe. And so with that framework, then NVIDIA would be Cisco. The, the, the interesting thing about NVIDIA is, you know, by buying Mellanox and, and um, you know, developing CUDA, you know, they've, they've built moats at several uh, points in the, in the early stack. So that, the bull case is that, you know, they're, you know, an incredibly powerful multi-layered uh, company in, the, in their value delivery. AI-related investments in the U.S. could reach $100 billion by 2025. So do you believe there are enough profit pools on the other side to support that? And I'm thinking of what Frank Slootman, CEO of Snowflake, said. We cannot sort of unleash AI and have no business model to pay for it. I think the, that this is why I think the early winner in, in, in the apps layer is going to be clearly Microsoft, right? They've, they've got the co-pilot um, business model or, or, or UI uh, model figured out. Um, it can be applied in their programming tools. It can be applied in their Office uh, 365 business. And then they've got the, the Azure business running those things, uh, as well as any custom uh, apps that you want to build and access uh, OpenAI can be run on Azure. So I think that, that the, you know, if, if, my, if you think about my thesis that ultimately we're going to get to a point where every piece of data that comes into your into your um, enterprise is going probably to go through multiple uh, LLM uh, opportunities. I mean, if if you're sweeping, if if you know what what can make you more efficient in your day, well, you show up to your your uh, you turn your computer on and it summarizes. Hey, you've got 42 emails. 30 of them are about this. You know, you're being asked to do. To, to take action by these people, you know, how do you want to deal with this? Um, that is, you know, in order to do that kind of thing, which Microsoft has tried to do in the past, um, that means every piece of data is going, going through an, an LLM at some level. And, and, you know, how does that break up between um, uh, CPU and, and GPU? We'll, you know, we'll figure that out when we get there. But um, I just, I just think there's, there's too much value to accrue to the user 
that uh, that we don't eventually get to that that point uh, in time. And and you know, the, I think the the only question is pace. Uh, how quick? And, and that'll be a, a question of economics, right? What well, can you get paid for it? And um, and and what's the what's the supply of of the right kind of chips and the right kind of software to make it happen? And and that's why free markets uh, work. And so, you know, we're looking forward to seeing that happen. But I think, you know, just like, you know, my, Bill Gates had the view that eventually there's going to be a computer on every desktop and a computer in every home. Um, that's we're, we're heading to, you know, an LLM uh, taking a look at, 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 you know, every piece of data that comes into your into your uh, computer. I mean, the cost of competition, infrastructure and energy make it difficult to still generate profits from AI products and assistance, even with the subscription fees. So case in point, the GitHub Copilot, even though Copilot is a paid product at $10 a month, the rumor is Microsoft lost an additional $20 per user monthly on average. Some users were costing the money company as much as $80 a month. So how does big tech capitalize on AI's promise while avoiding losses? So it's my understanding that, um, that Microsoft is literally limiting the companies that can get access to uh, to the the early Copilot version of Office 365, and even very very large customers that pay them a billion dollars uh, a year have um, have been blocked uh, or they haven't rolled out yet. Now those obviously are extremely important customers, so they have to you know make sure that the product's ready and 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 the the users are ready for this new experience, but um, it, I think it's, it's, it's still early, right? And, and there, there's going to be, uh, it's gonna take time for them to get the computing architecture so, uh, built out. So, so, the, so we'll see, it, it takes time. And, and uh, you know, I, how do they get a return? I mean, it's gotta, it's gotta work well. So it, like anything, if it doesn't, if it doesn't work, uh, they'll slow it down. I think that the advantage for uh, the mega cap companies is that they they each have uh, you know they each have cash cow businesses that allow them to invest ahead of economic profits uh, from AI, and so we will rely at some level on uh, you know their CFOs to make those trade offs in terms of getting ahead of the market. And um, and getting market share early, even if it's unprofitable, but I, I do think that this is a um, this is a sea change kind of event in in our industry. I think if you look at Meta, for instance, you can look at what uh, how Mark Zuckerberg thinks about the risk reward of missing AR VR, um, and I'd say it's. I think it's the data is pretty clear that a AR VR today is a tiny market. Um, and if you look forward uh, or if you look today at today's AI market, I think that it's um, a much larger, larger market, much faster. And you look at meta burning $12 billion a year or $14 billion a year uh, funding AR VR uh, before it's a real market, and you say, you know, what what's the what's the willingness of Google and uh, Microsoft and and Meta and uh, Amazon to make sure that they're early and and gaining early customers in AI? I think it's probably uh, a very high amount of spending.
NVIDIA has 85% share of the AI chip market, but is it starting to lose some of its hardware advantage with you know, AMD's MI300, Intel's Gaudi 3 are launching potentially technically superior hardware? Then you've got Microsoft working on a new chip, Athena, Google has TPU V5. Do you think NVIDIA will be able to maintain their market share or margins going forward due to these competitive threats? I think they'll certainly lose market share, right? I mean, I think that's, that's inevitable. Uh, all of the largest customers for um, GPUs uh, in, the, in the network layer need to have multiple uh, vendors that they can go to. And so I think AMD is, the, is potentially the most uh, or the closest competition to uh, NVIDIA. Um, but they're behind in terms of the software and, and networking layers. And so that has been a, um, an obstacle for cu customers looking to utilize AMD on the training side. Um, I think most people think that AMD will make more inroads into inference uh, workloads. And I think that's the expectation as well for other uh, competitors, Trainium and, and, and others, um, that that there will be more uh, competition at the inference uh, layer uh, over time, but that that and you know we just saw yesterday Microsoft announced their uh, their chip and you know when you look at the specs, its ability to access high bandwidth memory is very limited. For instance, uh, versus uh, an Nvidia chip or or an AMD chip, so. You know, there, there will be competitions, a massive, successful, uh, massive market, as we've talked about. Um, we expect there to be uh, competition and um, and we expect AMD to be the biggest competitor to to uh, NVIDIA with time. What percentage market share do they get? Do they get, you know, 10 percent, 15 percent, 20, 25? We don't know. You know, we have to wait and see. That will be uh that, that'll be interesting to see how it works out. But uh, but I do expect over time, NVIDIA's market share to fall. Seen similar things, for instance, you know, in Tesla, Tesla's, you know, redu their, their percentage of EVs that, that globally are being sold by Tesla has fallen, but um, they still have 50%, uh, over 50% market share. Um, and they're still, you know, their, their, their percentage share of the profit pool is uh, very large. So same thing, you know, in smartphones, you know, you saw Apple over time has um, has lo lost share to Android, but they lost a lot of unprofitable share. And over time, they they've um, gained back share as well in the last couple of years versus Android. NVIDIA chips are used 19 times more than all others combined for AI use. And though H100 has the hype, V100 released in 2017 was the most used GPU in 2022. I'm also uh, thinking about something that the AWS CEO, Adam Sadipsky said, you know, a lot of the customers I've talked to are unhappy about the cost that they're seeing for running some of these models. We're clearly at a place where now we've got to translate the excitement and interest level into true adoption. So how soon do costs start to fall? Well, I think they're already falling in terms of uh, software and um and techniques of uh, you know utilizing the the chips and how 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 they're being put into use uh, operationally. So in the different uh, techniques of training and and so you know we're we're certainly following that uh, the cost. I think there will be a change in uh, 
in uh, pricing when the MI300 come, comes out in terms of, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the amount of processing you can get for your dollar. And so I think competition is ultimately a good thing. We have to get to the point where these processes that we can deliver as much value as possible, given the cost of, of uh, running AI. So, you know, over time, this is inevitable and, and a good thing. Everyone is GPU poor and constrained today, and the leading edge models for training are constrained by computing, memory, and data. But if history is a guide, supply reacts to demand. And recently, NVIDIA released a new roadmap pushing the cadence of product announcements to every year from every other year, a perfect example of supply reacting quickly to demand. So it's not a question of if, but when supply will overshoot demand. We have never seen a shortage that was not followed by a glut. How soon do you think we get there? Well, I... I say, you know, I don't expect it to be uh, in 2024 um, based on, you know, the information that, that we have. I think at this point there, the, um, you know, companies like Microsoft and Amazon can't keep up with the demand for, uh, for AI cycles. And um, so at this point, I think we're still in, in a supply constrained environment. I don't disagree. Semiconductors will uh, ultimately uh, reach a point of oversupply. Um, we've seen that, you know, there's been many, many cycles through the years. And so it's a natural part of the business. But at this point in time, uh, in, you know, late 2023, uh, we don't expect there to be a correction event uh, for, for some time. Can you identify double quadruple ordering within the channel? Uh, not, not, not with any precision. Certainly not us. Um, you know, I think that's <clears throat> that's somewhere where you rely on the expertise of companies like AMD and Nvidia that have been doing this for, you know, decades. Um, you know, it's sort of their job. I think the bigger question uh, in terms of this market uh, is what was the impact of the um, the limitations that. Uh, the U.S. government has put on uh, China as far as their ability to import uh, uh, GPUs and what kind of stockpiling has occurred. Tencent just came out, uh, you know, two days ago and said they have a significant supply. I believe they said 10,000 GPUs uh, in, uh, in, in their inventory. Um, that will give them uh, an opportunity to put those to work over the coming year or two. So that there certainly has been excess ordering out of China. The question you have to ask yourself is, um, what's the what's the real demand in, from the U.S. or the rest in the rest of the world for uh, GPU chips, and can uh, will that demand um, you know uh, end up falling short of the potential supply over the next year or two. That's the question that I think everyone's trying, will be trying to figure out in the coming uh, quarters and, and uh, year and as to when, when we peak out. I think in a lot of ways, investors, a lot of investors have assumed that we've already reached that point. Um, and as I said, I've said, you know, I don't think we're, we're there based on what we know. What I've been thinking about is that, you know, the NVIDIA's 100, uh, H100 GPU is priced at around $30,000. If we start to see that selling for less, is that an omen? 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, gross margins and pricing matters and, uh, you know, very, very directly. I think the, the thing that people might be missing, though, is that um, NVIDIA could easily charge a lot more for for what for uh, H100s today. And, you know, they, I think they've shown some discipline in terms of uh, not uh, you know, not charging uh, full price, which is why there's a shortage of them and, um, you know, are part of why there's a shortage. So it's, um, you know, it is, you know, we're relying on, on uh, NVIDIA to, to show some discipline. And, you know, that's, that's an important aspect of uh, investing in a semiconductor company is, is the experience of, the management team in, in managing their way through uh, cycles like this. Where do you see questionable excitement around AI? Like who are the false prophets of today? The, there's certainly noise around certain LLM uh, providers. I think there's, it's been well chronicled, uh, some of the, the turmoil at Stability AI uh, in, in the press. Um, so that's you know, one place that I think there's some, some question. Um, I, I don't really see the, the same, uh, behaviors that we saw in sort of internet 1.0 and in the late nineties yet. I think that's probably to come. I think there's, there's, there's a certain amount of healthy skepticism, uh, being, uh, used, uh, for applications layer companies that are, um, claiming, ownership of the market. So Palantir, for instance, has made some very interesting and bold claims about their market position and uh, really be, you know, saying that they are the AI company. I think that's probably a, an, something that we need to all uh, keep an eye on. I think um, as well, C3 AI is another company that, uh, that I think, uh, there's been some bold claims uh, made by their management team around their ability to deliver value for customers. I think there's a consensus that, for instance, Adobe is an AI winner. I, I don't know that that's true. I mean, I think that we have to see how uh, they, you know, they compete in the marketplace when we get to the point where the users are willing to pay um, significant amounts for their AI-driven products, and so we we can't make the assumption uh, that an AI that that an applications company is is a winner until we see it and we see what their competitor their incumbent competitors as well as any kind of startups uh, you know how they've how they've progressed with their products and it's it's going to be a business execution task. So those are a couple companies that were uh, certainly keeping an eye on. Where are we in the semi-cycle XAI, do you think? Well, we're, we're probably around the bottom. You know, I think we're seeing a recovery in the um, PC market. We've gotten past some really tough compares and, and a lot of repla replacement uh, of PCs that happened, that got pulled forward in, during COVID, certainly on the consumer side of things but also on businesses, if you were working from home for, you know, a year or two uh, or off and on from home, you, you probably were successful in 
convincing your employer to up, upgrade your laptop maybe a little bit faster than it, it might have otherwise been upgraded. And uh, so we're seeing things kind of bottom out and, and start to improve in uh, PCs. Say the, the, the phone market is, um, is still pretty, uh, pretty slow. And uh, there's, there is some pickup in, in Android activity in uh, China uh, as Huawei is starting to come back to market uh, with more phones. And so that's, you know, probably somewhat good for the market, but maybe uh, a little bit more of a obstacle for Apple and uh, their, their, their supply chain. So, uh, and I think there's questions around regulatory obstacles that China might put in front of Apple going forward, given the frosty relationship with the U.S. government. So um, so we're seeing, you know, autos, I think the auto industry with higher rates is, is, is seeing, seeing some slowdowns and um, industrial uh, activity is, is also seeing some, some air pockets. So it's, it, it's not as uh, attractive, uh, you know, in general, but I think we are kind of starting to hit bottoms with the, you know, PC market. So uh, I think it'll get better, uh, but uh, we're not expecting any, a, a V bottom certainly in uh, outside of um, AI. How do you think about SaaS demand stability through a recession? You know, the issue is, are software companies actually cheap now? Like, how do you estimate growth rates in this new paradigm? There's still many businesses with new lower rates of growth and no profitability insight. Well, yeah, that, the last thing you said is the most important thing. I think that the industry was incentivized for many years sort of in an increasing way each year to um, to focus just on growth of revenues or billings, ARR, and not worry about profitability because investors assumed that, you know, there were 20 to 30% uh, operating margins in the long run. And that built a significant cost basis uh, at these companies, including very aggressive um, stock-based compensation that will be with these companies for several years. So it's, it's uh, the, the whole industry needs to go on a pretty significant diet uh, in terms of how they, you know, prioritize projects on the R&D front as well as go-to-market strategies. And at the same time, they're being challenged to build uh, AI into their into their uh, products. So I think that's that's the big question. I think the companies that are best at managing their uh, expenses over the next three to four years will be the winners. Uh, in you know, but at the same time, they have to continue to uh, deliver value and for their customers. So it's 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 tricky. Um, if you look at the valuations on software companies today, you know, we've seen that, you know, we saw them come up and peak. They, they've come back to a level that is still, if you look at it on the long run of 25 to 30 years, it's still at the higher end of that long run of, of valuations. The reason for that 
is that the business model running a software company is far better today than in the past because of recurring revenues and subscription, as opposed to the old license maintenance model. And so it's hard to say what, what valuations should be in the long run. I mean, that's it's a function of, of the market, but at least we it seems like we've found somewhat of a, a plateau here for, for valuations. But the next challenge for the industry is to operate more efficiently. Every large technological change has a huge capital rush before it. You know, railroads, canals, trading group monopolies, the internet, and now AI all tend to have huge capacity additions that eventually form bubble-like conditions. How do you know when stocks have gone too far too fast in this cycle? I think what we want to watch for is excess capital formation at the applications layer where um, companies don't have significant uh, customer data assets, but claim to deliver uh, or, or own a category. That will be um, certainly something to, to keep an eye on. Uh, you know, how, if the market overdoes its excitement uh, in the, you know, too early at, at the apps layer, I think that's where there's most likely to be uh, excess um, excitement, ex irrational exuberance, so to speak. What else comes to mind? You know, what you brought up earlier, I mean, supply and demand around the key, uh, the key infrastructure, it, you know, in terms of um, chip, chip supply, chip demand, that's another place where we have to monitor and understand, uh, you know, what's happening and, and, and as well as pricing. So I think there's, when you look at, you know, the success that, for instance, a company like CoreWeave is happening, I think it's pretty clear, if, you know, at this point that the supply demand uh, mechanics are, are in the favor of, uh, of your hyperscalers and of the, of the uh, semiconductor companies. So to the extent that changes and you see a slowdown in, in, in a company like CoreWeave um, or, or a fall off of, of pricing, uh, th those would be signals that that uh, supply and demand have uh, become imbalanced in the other direction. How are you thinking about China in all of this? Not as much as we have in the past is the answer. Um, you know, I think it's been a difficult, uh, we've, we've come through a pretty difficult period where the Chinese government um, put a lot of restrictions on the internet and gaming sectors of the, you know, the Chinese uh, publicly traded companies. We, I started going to China in 2004 and it was a very uh, green filled opportunity. And over the next, you know, almost two decades, um, we've now kind of uh, been through a big cycle in the consumer internet. Um, there's still a pr the, the, the software sector enterprise software business is pretty um small in china and a lot of applications are built internally at companies more custom and so it's not as an attractive place to to invest um the, you know in in the software uh software companies in china so I think now the the it, the biggest issue continues to be regulation with 
um, you know, hallucinations and, and, and incorrect information. Um, that's, that's a real issue for us here in the West. But, and I think it's, a, it's also perhaps a bigger uh, risk uh, in, in China. I think that um, the regulatory infrastructure there is, um, you know, leans to the side of having more control than, than we require rather than less. We're obviously the market speaks more so for, um, for the user here. And uh, so there's, there's more direct regulatory pressure. And so I think AI is going to be under, under, a pretty, uh, under pretty tight control in China. So at this point in time, um, I'd prefer to just allocate capital uh, in the US and, and, and Europe around the AI opportunity. You know, after an incredible 10-year run for your fund, you experienced gut-wrenching losses in 2021 and 2022, uh, you told me that it felt like you had been punched in the face. <laughs> you know, what risk management lessons did you learn the hard way? You know, a couple things, uh, you know, that, that come to mind. Certainly, um, the interest rate uh, shift in uh, and, and inflation stickiness were the biggest uh, impact on uh software multiples. And um, that was that was that was very difficult. Um, you know, we had been through, I think we got too complacent on, uh, you know, expecting multiples to maintain uh, the higher levels that that um, that that had developed over over many years. Um, you know, when Salesforce was early in being public, it traded it you know, four times or maybe five times revenue. And, and over time, uh, you know, that moved to eight times. And, and, and ultimately at the peak uh, of COVID, uh, as demand for software as a service solutions uh, reached, a, reached an, you know, sort of a crescendo uh, in the short term, there, there were multiples that were, you know, 10 and, and you know, 13 times for very high growth companies, maybe as high as 14, 15 in a few cases. So, um, you know, that, that we certainly, uh, certainly got, uh, hurt on. I think in addition on the, on the, in the consumer side of the portfolio, uh, the shift or the expected shift out, out of, um, e-commerce behavior was really, uh, difficult and, you know, we used a lot of um, customer activity data around credit card activity, and it was, uh, you know, the, the 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 reality is the stock market did a much better job of anticipating future weakness. Um, in some cases, that that came to fruition, and others it, it didn't. But um, it, you know, it was it was a very uh, fast and messy, you know. Uh, transition to post-COVID uh, activity in terms of the valuations of these companies that really dramatically led the reality of, of sort of a slowdown in e-commerce. So that was difficult. I think, you know, in any kind of um, market downturn, your uh, exposure to uh, liquidity or potential 
uh, falling liquidity in, in stocks in the uh, small and mid cap area um, is, you know, can can be very difficult uh, in, in times of weakness. And so we got uh, caught in a couple of things that were where where we owned a little bit more than we should have owned. And, um, you know, so you learn from all those experiences, you know, that certainly um, we've always monitored liquidity uh, for the entire portfolio and for individual positions every day. And um, but when things uh, go wrong quickly on fundamentals and on valuation, the the liquidity can dry up pretty quickly. So we've had to be a little bit more conservative um, around uh, future expectations of liquidity for uh, small and mid cap companies. And so those are all things that, that I wouldn't say they were lessons we've never um, dealt with, but um, you know, it's, it's a reminder to, um, to, to stay diligent in in all those categories. When you were at your lowest, how did you manage your mental and emotional state? Like what helped you the most? Perspective, right. On, on uh, life and what, really matters. And, um, you know, we certainly, you know, all are, it, it matters, you know, I want to want to do the best job I can for my LPs and for my family in terms of our capital, we're, we're one of the largest investors in our funds. Um, so, but at the same time, you know, it, um, we, you know, your family is what matters and, uh, you know, staying uh, present and um, fit, physically fit and, and, you know, keeping your health and, and through a very difficult period, those are, those are all things that we you have to stay focused on. And it's, it's harder in those times where you're having the most difficulty professionally to uh, focus on those things. So you just got to keep that, um, you know, front and center in your mind and, and, and um, you know, as much as, uh, Staring and at, at the numbers and uh, trying to figure out what happens next is very valuable. You have to give yourself a break and um, and and you'll be sharper in the long run if if you um, if you you know are able to step away uh, from you know on a daily basis and 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 get some distance. You're having a fantastic year now, but do you remember an, an anecdote or a moment a year ago that would reflect this? You know, when you get uh, you get that conviction that um, that something you know significant is happening in the marketplace. So I, I do think that the you know ChatGPT uh, 3.5 was probably the 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 biggest moment of our you know of the beginning of of the ascent in 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 our portfolio. Um, and as I shared, I mean, I've been following the usage of of GPUs for AI going back, you know, many many years. Um, so it, it was a confirmation of something that we expected to occur. But when you see that happen, you have to, you know, at that point, really draw draw a line and say, okay from this point forward, things may be pretty different. And it takes, you know, some, some guts to do that. But that was, that was probably the, the point in time where, um, 
internally, I, I got my team together and, was, and, and, you know, started telling stories about other points where this has happened in my career. And, and, uh, and that, that really helped us um, refocus our portfolio. After 30 years in the business, is there something that you're still trying to prove to yourself? Every day. Um, you know, I think, I, I don't know if it's proving uh, necessarily, but um, I'd say every day I find this to be incredibly rewarding in terms of trying to understand how the world will uh, be different and, and, and how that helps companies, uh, you know, and how, how it potentially, you know, improves the world we live in. And that, that's a never ending, you know, experience and journey. And, and I think I'm more focused on, on the electronic technology sector, but you start, when we start getting on the edges of, of our expertise, you, we, we start hearing about the util, utilization of AI, for instance, in drug discovery. And um, that, is incredibly exciting to me, but but a little bit outside of our our expertise. You start thinking about the ability to treat med serious medical conditions in a far more advanced way in the coming years, as a result of you know chips that were originally built for playing video games. That's that's pretty dramatic. That's a pretty dramatic outcome, and uh, I think we're we're still. You know, I think it's very exciting to see, you know, some of these big long-term trends uh, coming, coming, you know, being developed and, and ultimately will, will likely deliver significant value and improve people's lives. So that's, uh, that, that, that's exciting. That gets me out of, uh, out of bed, so to speak, every morning. Instead of a final question, I'd like to make a final request. So if you can just repeat and finish this sentence for me. I want to thank myself for. <laughs> uh, That's deep. Um, I want to thank myself. I, I don't know if I can answer that. I, I, I would say for me, I'm, I'm most grateful to my investors, right? Um, because I have some phenomenal investors that, uh, that have been been investing we went through you know difficult period as as many did and it's you know when you you do that you do question yourself right and you say you know i you know deep inside like i didn't wake up stupid um we made mistakes but we can correct them so maybe i'm thanking myself for for allowing myself to keep going despite feeling pretty down about not um anticipating some things that occurred in the last couple of years. But, um, but really I, I thank my, my investors because those that are um, that have stuck with us uh, are really getting in, getting to benefit from us continuing to do our job as best we can um, to anticipate that future. And, and, and now, you know, we're all benefiting from it uh, this year and, and hopefully for many years to come. I want to thank you, Glenn, for joining me. I enjoyed this conversation and learned a lot as always. Appreciate your time. 
Thank you so much, Jawad. I really appreciate uh, you having me on.